Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the One Who Plans podcast, and uh, a happy Black History Month to you as we uh, begin in February here. Uh, and I'm a big believer in Black History Month. I think uh, there's a lot of really good uh, black history and black stories out there that don't get told typically in, well, in our <laughs> Caucasian-centered textbooks. Uh, and so I want to try to k- tell a couple good uh, good stories uh, of some some great black characters uh, from church history here at the the start of the month, and I thought I'd I'd start today with uh, just a really interesting figure, a, a fascinating woman uh, who played a big big role in in helping to uh, abolish slavery uh, here in the United States. Her name was Sojourner Truth, uh, but that wasn't her born her given name from birth, uh, as we'll hear about. So, but uh, I'm going to call her Sojourner Truth throughout this, uh, even though she doesn't get that name till later in life, uh, that's what she's known at, that's what I'm going to call her, and that's the name she chooses for herself, so I think it's it's right to call her that. Uh, but she's, like I said, she's not born that, she's born Isabella Bomfrey, uh, is her birth name, uh, she's born in, well, around 1797, uh, it's typically the date given, you know, she's born into slavery, and so it's it's hard to say, uh, for sure, people weren't keeping great records of slave births. Um, but she's born into slavery around 1797 uh, in kind of upstate New York, Esopus. I'm not even sure if that's how you say it. I've never heard of it, but that's where she's born. Uh, she's one of 12 children. Uh, her parents are both slaves. Uh, I mean, obviously born into slavery. Her father was a slave who was taken, uh, forcibly taken, like most slaves, uh, from Ghana. Her mother was taken from Guinea, uh, so they would have got there and probably spoke different languages, but uh, they end up getting married. Uh, whether they fell in love or not is another question. Sometimes they were forced into who they were uh, got married to by their masters. Uh, we don't really know the circumstances here, but um, but those are her parents, one of 12 children. She's owned as a slave by a guy named Charles Hardenberg. Uh, and she's growing up here in, in upstate New York in this uh, primarily Dutch area of New York, uh, which is interesting because Dutch was actually her first language and, and her original language. And, and eventually she does learn English, but she always speaks with a, a Dutch accent, which is not something you uh, you typically, I think, think of a, a slave figure. Um, well, when uh, she was nine years old, I mean, growing up in slavery is hard enough, but then at nine years old... Uh, Charles dies, and so she is taken from her family by a new owner uh, and sold. Uh, I mean, it's just horrific to think about taking a nine-year-old from her parents, from her family, and and selling them to another person, a nine-year-old child. But that's what happened to her. She sold at an auction. She sold bundled together uh, with a flock of sheep. I mean, just... It's just insane to think about that this happened not that long ago, really, in human history, in, in the country we live in. A nine-year-old was sold with a flock of sheep for $100. They bought the sheep, and they bought a child. <sighs> it, it just shows how, how slaves and really African people, black people, were, were viewed at this point. They were thought of like a commodity, like livestock, right? They were just, that's what they were to be bought and sold. You'd, you'd bought a, a human child the same way you'd buy a lamb, right? So she she's bought by a, a new owner, a guy named John Neely, uh, who was just a horrible, horrible person. 
not just because he was buying children, but also because he was just harsh and very violent towards her as a child and towards all his slaves. Right? He would regularly beat, uh, beat her. He would treat her just horribly, uh, as he did all of his slaves. Luckily, she wasn't there for too long, two years, which would be long enough as you're just a frightened child being beaten by uh, this master of yours. But after two years, she's sold to a guy named Martinez Shriver, uh, who in turn only keeps her for 18 months and then sells her again to a guy named John Dumont. So here, I mean, here she is just... <sighs> A young girl, and she's been bought and sold three times already in her life. And now uh, she ends up with Dumont, who who doesn't buy, who doesn't sell her. He keeps her the rest of well, the rest of the time she's a slave, uh, which fortunately is not the rest of her life, as we're gonna hear. Uh, but he was also just a horrible man. Uh, while she's still uh, a young teenage girl, he begins raping her, something that unfortunately was all too common uh, for slave women by their masters. Uh, this went on for years. She actually bore a child as a result of one of these forced sexual encounters. Um, yeah, just horrific stuff. Uh, not all, not everything is horrible. She does fall in love, so there's some good in the midst of, of the, the evils. Uh, she fall in love with this uh, a neighbor slave named Robert. So he's not owned, uh, not owned by the same guy. Right, which becomes part of the story. He's not owned by DeMont, but by a neighbor. They are able to interact. They fall in love. He visits her during the middle of the night. In fact, at one point, he gets caught doing this. He gets beaten severely. Uh, and at which point, uh, Robert's owner uh, just makes him disappear. He bans him from seeing each other. We're not really sure what happens to Robert if he gets sold off. <laughs> if he got killed, I don't, I don't know. But he's out of the picture because, um, well... His owner doesn't want him fraternating with a slave uh, un who's owned by a different master because, you know, if they did, you know, fall in love, they wanted to marry each other, if they had kids, you know, who would own those kids, well, it would be uh, Sojourner Truth Master, not Roberts. So, you know, he, ban he puts a stop to the relationship. Uh, she doesn't see Robert again, and instead Dumont, uh, again, has her marry one of his slaves, a much older man named Thomas. Um, we're not sure how much choice he had in this, um, but they do have, if they didn't start in love, I mean, maybe love developed there. They ended up having three children together. They had a son and two daughters, um, and so she, you know, she's living her life there as a, as a slave. Her children are slaves. Her husband's a slave. That was, that was life, right? And all of this is still happening there in uh, upstate New York. Uh, but then, in 1799, things begin to change, right? As uh, New York, as as a state, begins the legislative process to to end slavery, right? With the end goal being the emancipation of all slaves. Now, this doesn't happen until 1827, but the, the, the work begins in progress in 1799, so it takes a long time. I mean, that's a long time waiting if you're a slave hoping to be freed. Uh, but there is that, it's in the works, and it's in the talks, and, and people know, people kind of know it's coming, especially slave masters and even the slaves themselves, which is why um, in 1826, a year before it officially happened, Dumont kind of agrees to, to free truth because they both kind of know this is coming. So he says, okay, if you keep working hard for me, I'll free you. 
the time comes when they had agreed upon where he was going to do so, and then he reneges on it, refuses to let her go, saying, you've been lazy, you haven't been working hard, makes up all these excuses. Uh, and so Sojourner Truth, she's just, she's fed up with it all, uh, and she just leaves, which is just great. She runs away. Uh, she becomes a, a runaway slave. Um, although the way she likes to say it, she doesn't say she runs away. She says, I just got up and walked out. Uh, so she doesn't like to say she ran. Um, but she ends up going, uh, she ends up being taken in by this abolitionist family, the Van Wagenens, uh, who live not too far away. Um, Dumont tracks her down there, and the Van Wagenens agree to buy her from Dumont for $20, uh, which they do. Uh, and then they free her because they're abolitionists. They want, uh, they don't believe in slavery. And so now she lives there with the, the Van Wagenens, and she actually takes their name. She changes her name to Isabella Van Wagenen. Um, and so she's there. She took her, her youngest daughter, who's just an infant at this point, she took her with her when she left. Uh, but her two other children are still there, including her son, who Dumont, probably in kind of an act of revenge, ends up selling uh, even though the slaves are about to be free, I think, and it's, uh, well, we'll we're going to see what comes up, is that it actually takes place after uh, he should have been free. So he, he sells her son Peter uh, to a slaver in Alabama, which Alabama is still a long way from being slaves. I mean, they're going to need a war to do that. Um, and so now her son has been, you know, instead of being freed, which he should have been in, in New York, is now enslaved in Alabama with just very little chance of getting out. And this is Alabama. We're talking deep south. I mean, this is a horrible place to be a slave because they're treated very... I mean, slaves weren't treated great anyway, but down there they're treated even worse. Right? Um, and we know, we know that uh, Peter does get treated very, very harshly and very poorly uh, in Alabama. But, uh, but truth is not about to take all this laying down. She's a free woman now. Uh, and and as we're going to see throughout the rest of the story, she's a fighter. She is a strong, uh, independent free woman. And so what she does is she files a lawsuit against Peter's new owner uh, and against Dumont and says that he was sold illegally and that he no, should no longer be a slave. And, and she goes through the legal system, which is just crazy to think about. This woman who just, I mean, literally like a year ago was a slave, has now been freed. Uh, and here's this black woman who really there's not much with less power uh, in America at this period of time, or possibly even today, uh, than a black woman. And here she is suing uh, a wealthy slave owner, right? And, and her, her court case goes all the way to the New York Supreme Court. And she wins. Yeah, she wins. Uh, and Peter's returned to her, and he's freed. Uh, he's severely traumatized by the treatment he received in Alabama, but he's a free man. Uh, and this is just, this. I mean, this is an amazing achievement, a really amazing achievement uh, that she is able to pull off. Uh, and so she's empowered by this, and she's also being empowered by this, this newfound faith that she has. Because it's during this time as she's embracing her freedom... Um, as she's fighting to get her son back, that she goes through this, this spiritual awakening, right? uh, as many people were doing it, especially in New England in this time period. Um, and she, you know, she learns about Jesus, which she probably had heard about before, uh, but she learns more about him, and, and she comes to accept Jesus as her Savior and comes to really believe in him. And I, I want to read you a quote from her that she, uh, she says later on in life, looking back on this moment. Uh, she says, Jesus loved me. I knowed it. I felt it. 
Jesus was my Jesus. Jesus would love me always. I didn't dare tell anybody. It was a great secret. Everything had been got away from me that I ever had, and I thought that if I let the white folks know about this, maybe they'd take it away also. So I said, I'll keep this close. I won't let anyone know. Which is both, I mean, that, that quote is both amazing, you know, that this this joy that she felt knowing that Jesus loved her, but also horrific hearing about how she had to keep it a secret so white folks couldn't take it away. Um, yeah, it kind of gets at the heart of what was going on. Uh, but now as she has found this this faith and, and just discovered this love for Jesus that Jesus has towards her and and she has towards him, uh, she dedicates herself to doing God's work. And so she leaves the Van Wagenens and she moves to New York City. She moves to the big city, uh, and there she gets really involved in the church scene. Um, and it's an interesting scene to see, say the least. Uh, she gets just she gets involved in there's a really weird crowd, right? This is kind of this weird offshoot of Methodism that's going on at the time. Uh, it's kind of cult like, well. <laughs> As we're going to see, it actually kind of is a cult. Uh, but she gets involved with this this movement, these people, um, first with this guy named Elijah Pearson, and she begins working as a housekeeper for him, and she kind of joins his movement. He's this eccentric evangelist. And I mean, when I say eccentric, I mean eccentric, eccentric. Like, uh, so much so that when his wife dies, he actually attempts to resurrect her at the funeral. Um, yeah. He's that kind of guy. Uh, and so she's there for a while. He eventually dies. Uh, before he dies, she goes on to become the housekeeper for an even more eccentric evangelist, a guy named Robert Matthews, or as, or as he called himself, Pro- Prophet Matthias. Um, and, I mean, he really was kind of a full-on cult leader. Uh, he has this little commune, which he calls the kingdom. Um, uh, being there and being his housekeeper actually gets her in a lot of trouble. I mean, there's a lot I could say about this guy. He was he ends up doing just a lot of horrible stuff, as a lot of cult leaders do. Uh, but one of the things he gets accused of, and she gets accused along with him, is murdering at Elijah Pearson, who she used to work for and, and be uh, involved in his life. Because he's killed. He's m- murdered by poison, they say. Um, and Robert Matthews, it seems, I mean, he's benefits greatly from this death. He takes Pearson's wealth and takes a lot of his followers. Uh, and so he's accused of murdering him. And and Sojourner, as Pearson's housekeeper, as someone who was close to him and knew him and someone close to Matthews, is, is also accused uh, of being an accomplice in this. And so uh, Matthews and Truth are both put on trial. There's not enough evidence to convict either of them. In fact, um, one of the big things that comes out during the trial is uh, is Truth's outstanding character. I guess she has letters and witnesses who kind of attest to this, that she would never do something like this, that she was such a, a good, hardworking, you know, Christian person. Um, and so she's acquitted of of these murder charges. Uh, but interestingly enough, after the case is done, she actually ends up going back to court because she she once again uses the legal system on her side, which we see for the second time here. And she uh, sues those who originally accused her of murder for slander, uh, a trial which she once again wins. Uh, it's, just, it's an all-around, just bizarre series of events. Um, she ends up leaving the cult after this, and which is good for everybody. Uh, but her devotion to Christ only goes stronger, right? And she begins preaching, and she begins teaching, and she's known for her abilities in both. She's still in this Methodist circle. Um, she's still working as a household servant, but she's also just a very vocal uh, out in the world about Christ um, and and about the abolitionist movement, about 
the evils of slavery, evils she knew all too well about fighting for equality. Um, you know, this is, and it's really spurred on, it's fueled by the Christian message. Now, she never, she never was able to read, but she, uh, she heard people read the Bible, and she learned the Bible, and, uh, she knew many passages by heart, and, and, you know, when, in the Bible, we got stuff like, you know, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, which, you know, everybody's, there's this, there's this message of equality, uh, in Christ, Right? And that was really near and dear to her. This belief that, you know, God loved all of his children, that God loved the world, uh, including her and including slaves like her. Um, this is uh, just this great quote uh, from her. Children, who made your skin white? Was it not God? Who made mine black? Was it not the same God? Am I to blame, therefore, because my skin is black? Does God... N- does God not love colored children as well as white children? And did not the same Savior die to save the one as well as the other? God made her. God made her black, and God loved her as black. And, and Jesus died for her, even though she was a black woman. Right? That was a, a core part of her message. Right? And so she went out, and, um, and she's teaching this and preaching about this. And she, like I said, she's becoming well-known, especially in, in these circles, these Methodist circles in New York, for her ability at this. Um, and it's in 1843 that she, she really feels called to, to devote her entire life uh, to this message and to preaching. Um, and it's at this moment that she changes her name from Isabella to Sojourner Truth. Uh, and this new name kind of sums up what she feels is her, her new calling, her real calling to, to be a sojourner, to, to journey out, to travel out around the world spreading truth, spreading God's truth, spreading the truth of, of Christ's message of equality and love. And that's what she does. She becomes a traveling preacher. Right, believing, fully believing that the Holy Spirit is calling her to be out in the world spreading her message. Right? And so she goes. Uh, she leaves New York City. She starts traveling around uh, the Northeast, um, spreading this message about Christ and about freedom for blacks. Right? That was always a big part of it. Um, and she's 45 years at this point, or right around there, and and she's out there just traveling with, with like nothing. She's got a pillowcase with, that she carries around with her, uh, with some possessions in it. She's uh, got very little money. She's got very little anything. Uh, she's relying on the kindness of, of you know, some of the people in whom uh, she's preaching for to kind of take her in a lot of times to provide for her. And, and she just, she travels uh, and doing this. And, and, and she's mainly traveling in, in um She's kind of left that Methodist circle now, and she's she's at this point she's involved in kind of another strange group. Uh, she gets involved with a lot of strange groups. Uh, this this time she's uh, she's kind of associating with this group called the Millerites. Uh, these are followers of a guy named William Miller. They're not real cleverly named, uh, and William Miller is out there saying that Christ is about to return, like right now like like in the next year Christ is going to return and he's got this group of followers called the Millerites who are all believing this and it's very cult like again really uh, and and um and they're all preparing themselves for the return of Christ which is about to happen any day now literally any day now and so much of her, her initial preaching now is, is being done in, uh, at these Millerite gatherings and in this group um in 1844 when Christ doesn't appear, as William said, like the window shuts that he gave him this window as to when Christ is going to come. Well, 
it opened and closed. Christ never showed up. Uh, the group, like as a whole, becomes disillusioned and disappointed, and a lot of people leave, including now Sojourner. She leaves uh, uh, this group, um, uh, but she finds another one to kind of take her in. So uh, in leaving the Millerites, uh, she joins the Northampton Association of Education and Industry, uh, which is a little commune in Massachusetts, uh, but... This time it's not a cult. This is actually a pretty decent group. Uh, this is a group of abolitionists that are living there in Massachusetts. Uh, and it's, I mean, really important, really famous abolitionists. Like most famously among them is Frederick Douglass, who hopefully you've heard of. He is a great man, a great figure, a great abolitionist leader. And then there's other great abolitionist leaders who are all part of this community. And it's it's this really strong group of people who are coming together, um, you know, going out and speaking out against slavery and working, uh, just adamantly working and spreading that message and, and, and trying to, you know, use the political systems of the time to bring an end to slavery, uh, you know, not just in Massachusetts, which I don't think has slavery at this point, but, you know, in the entire United States. And so she's a part of this group uh, and an important figure in there because even though she's not nearly as highly educated as some of them, like Frederick Douglass is well educated, she's not. Uh, but she has passion, right? She has passion and she has experience and she's just, she is a great speaker. She is. It, it may not be, you know, the greatest English and it's all done in a Dutch accent, um, but it, it's powerful and it's moving, right? And so she's out there with this group fighting uh, against the evils of slavery. And, and it's also uh, at this point that she is not just focusing on slavery anymore and trying to, to bring freedom for black people, but she's also fighting uh, very hard for her gender, right? As women's rights becomes an important issue for her. It's it's actually been an important issue for her, but it really picks up steam uh, around this time period. And something she she starts speaking on just as often as she does uh, as uh, slavery. Um, and this and really, it's I mean, it, it it's all connected. I mean, she wants freedom. Uh, going back to going back to Paul, you know, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, right? She wants equality and freedom for slaves and, and for women. She wants equality for both. And she wants all people, all of her people, you know, being a black woman, people like her to be treated as equals in this life. Um, and so she is, so she's out there and she's doing more of these speaking engagements. She's not just up in the Northeast anymore. Um, you know, in 1846, this little group, this commune kind of dissolves and, and she starts moving out of the Northeast. She starts heading West. She's going, you know, into States like Missouri and Ohio. Um, and it, it's here in actually in 1850, um, or 1851 in Ohio that she gives uh, probably her best known speech. It's really, really famous, uh, speech. It's a really powerful speech. Uh, she gives this at the Ohio Women's Rights Convention, um, and it, it's called Ain't I a Woman? It's the name of this speech, which, unfortunately, uh, she likely never actually said. <laughs> the speech is named the Ain't I a Woman speech. Uh, it's named that because uh, 12 years after she gives it, uh, uh, this woman in Gates uh, reproduces it. She publishes it. Um, and in this publication, it, the the way the speech is written, she repeatedly says, ain't I a woman? Uh, um, but it seems to be a very, very inaccurate and embellished copy of the speech. We know that because we actually have 
an original report of the speech she gave, which was written down just a month after she gave the speech by someone who was actually there, a guy named Marius Robinson, who published it in the Anti-Slave Journal. He was a, a friend of Sojourners. He was there at the rally. He heard the speech firsthand, and he wrote it down soon after um, versus um, writing it down 12 years later by someone who wasn't there and who didn't even know Sojourner. Right? And and we know uh, that the original, the this first uh, account that Robinson gives of the speech is way more likely what the speech actually was than the Gates edition, uh, because, uh, you know, the later one, the 12 years later one, uh, she speaks in this strong southern, like, black slave kind of twang, which is kind of, you know, a stereotype atypical for how southern people, uh, southern black people in particular, would have spoke. Uh, and we know for a fact that Sojourner didn't speak with any type of southern black twang, because, she, like I said earlier, she had a Dutch accent, right? Uh, she was never exposed she never lived in the South. She was never exposed to that. Uh, there's just no way she spoke like that. And not only that, but like there's a lot of facts that they give. Like it says at one point uh, in her speech, Sojourner says she had 13 children, which we also know wasn't true. So there's a lot of historical facts that, that aren't accurate in the speech. Uh, and just all of it together doesn't make much sense. And so the Robinson copy is is what we... I mean, just about every historian will say is is way more accurate. I mean, we don't know exactly if it's word for word, but it's got to be pretty close, way closer than the later edition, which unfortunately is the way more famous one. If you go online and look it up, there's, you know, you can find YouTube videos by famous actresses and stuff giving the <laughs> the inaccurate edition of the speech because, you know, the ain't I a woman line is really powerful and it's strong and it sounds good, but uh, it just probably isn't something she actually said. Um you know, we see this a lot with historical speeches. It's amazing how much of actual, like, hugely important lines that we think uh, people said probably were never said by those people. It's a thing in history, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, it's easier to embellish and add that stuff later, uh, which is probably the case here. But I want to read you the uh, the original uh, reproduction of her speech, because I think even, you know, even if she doesn't say that phrase, ain't I woman, the, the meaning and the power of the speech is still clear. And it, it is right along those lines, because this is a speech she's given for women's rights. And in here, we see some of her slave background. And in here, we see Jesus. So it, it kind of captures everything. So I'm going to I'm going to read you uh, the speech. It's really not that long. So I'll get through the whole thing here for you. I want to say a few words about this matter. I am a woman's rights. I have as much muscle as any man, and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed, and reaped, and husked, and chopped, and mowed, and can any man do more than that? I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man. I can eat as much, too, if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is, if a woman have a pint, and a man a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not be afraid to give us our rights, for fear we will take too much, for we can't take more than our pine will hold. The poor men seems to be all confused, and don't know what to do. Why, children, if you have women's rights, give it to her, and you will feel better. You will have your own rights, and they won't be so much troubled. I can't read, but I can hear. I have heard the Bible, and have learned that Eve caused man to sin. Well... If a woman upset the world, do give her a chance to set it right side up again. The lady has spoken about Jesus, how he never spurned women from him, and she was right. 
When Lazarus died, Mary and Martha came to him with faith and love, and besought him to raise their brother. And Jesus wept, and Lazarus came forth. And how came Jesus into the world? Through God, who created him, and the woman who bore him. Man, where was your part? But the women are are coming up, blessed be God. And a few of the men are coming up with them. But man is in a tight place. The poor slave is on him. Woman is coming on him. He is surely between a hawk and a buzzard. So again, there, there we kind of see, uh, you know, like I said, all the things that she's passionate about. We see uh, her slave history uh, on a site as she talks about, you know, how much she had to work and how she would do the work of a man and, and all of that. Uh, we see clearly, uh, I mean, her passion for women's rights. Uh, and, we, and I love the biblical imagery she brings in. I mean, it is actually, it's, it's a great line, right? You know, uh, how did Jesus come into the world? Through God and through a woman. Man, where was your part? Right? That is just, that's a brilliant line. Um, and even that, uh, that tying into Eve, you know, if a woman upset the world, well, give women a chance to set it right side up again. Right? It's, it's, it's great. Uh, it's great stuff. So you can see why she was such a popular speaker, you know, with, with lines like that and with Im- imagery like that. Um, and, and so we can see, you know, her, her belief in the Bible. We can see her belief in women's rights. Uh, we can see her slave history. It's, it's all there uh, in that speech. And you can see why she was such uh, a popular and great speaker, um, and which she continues to be, you know. She continues to travel around giving her speeches uh, throughout. Um, in 1850, we get a, a actually kind of a cool event. Uh, we get a record of her, her life. Um, one of her friends, a guy named Oliver Gilbert, helps her write an autobiography. I mean, he writes it. She can't read or write. But she tells him it, her story, and he writes it down, and, and it's a great book. The Narratives of Sojourner Truth, A Northern Slave. Go find it and give it a read. Uh, but it also increases uh, her reach and her message as this gets published. Um, she begins. She's going on tour now with uh, a fellow abolitionist, George Thompson. Um, I mean, she's... I mean, it's just, it's kind of a cool life. She's, as she's out on tour with him, she meets and befriends Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, another great historical character who you hopefully have heard of, another great abolitionist figure. Um, But as she's traveling, not everybody loves what she has to say, obviously. I mean, racism and sexism are rampant. She's still in the minority uh, people, especially in certain parts of the country that that believe slaves should be free and women should be treated equal. Uh, and so she's attacked multiple times while she's out on tour, while she's doing her speaking engagement. She's she's beaten quite severely a couple times, uh, yet she goes on. She refuses to be silenced. She was just tough. She had to be. I mean, her whole life was tough. Um, she ends up uh, settling down, finally, in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, she buys a house there. She actually rejoins her old Millerite friends, who aren't Millerites anymore. They've now long left behind the the teachings of William Miller. Uh, but, you know, the old Millerite group, they they liked each other. You know, they wanted to keep being a part of each other, and they've kind of revamped some of Miller's theology. They uh, came up with some new theories and said, well, he was on the right track. He just was kind of wrong. And uh, I'm not going to get into all that. But at this point, they're calling themselves the Seventh-day Adventists, which is actually still a group that's very much around. You've probably heard of them. Uh, and so she settles down in Battle Creek, Michigan, with the Seventh-day Adventist group, um, but she continues her abolitionist work, even though she's she's kind of making a home for herself. Uh, she's not going to quit the fight. Um, and, and, you know, and at this point in history, uh, well, it's actually becoming a very near reality 
right? This idea that, that the slaves could be free is, is, is on the verge of happening because, uh, well, we're in the Civil War now. Right? This, is, this is when the Civil War is happening. Uh, and, and she can see how important this is. So during the war, she is actually very active in the war effort in uh, going out and trying to recruit uh, black people to join the Union Army. She's, she's recruiting black troops. Because who better to fight for their freedom than themselves? Um, and, and one of her grandsons actually does join the Union Army, a guy named James Caldwell. He goes out and he, he fights for the freedom uh, to end slavery. Um, and also during this time, she's, uh, she's still a very uh, outspoken and very vocal leader in the abolitionist movement. Uh, in 1864, she actually travels to Washington, D.C., where she has a meeting with Abraham Lincoln, where she uh, lays out her beliefs and ideas. And, and I mean, how incredible is that? I just, just all of this is incredible. This, this child who's born into slavery is now, you know, talking uh, with and meeting with you know, the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States. Well, he's probably not the most powerful man in the world at this point quite yet, but he's the president of the United States and he's still very powerful, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, and in, in Washington, she also becomes active in this another group. It's called the National Freedmen's Relief Association. This is an organization working to improve conditions for freed blacks, which there you know are more and more of, and it's, uh, well, and there's going to be a lot more of. Um, and that really becomes her passion towards the end of her life. As as the war ends, as slavery is abolished, as the slaves are freed, she now takes all that energy she was using to try to make that happen, and she pours it into trying to make a better life uh, for these freed slaves. Uh, and what she really works at uh, in Washington, and what she really lobbies hard for, is to try to secure land grants for freed slaves, because she firmly believes that for them to have a chance, they need land so they can make a life for themselves. Um, and so she spends seven years, uh, you know, just adamantly uh, trying to make this happen. Uh, unfortunately, she never does, uh, which is, I mean, yeah. Slavery ends racism, doesn't. Uh, that's very much the story of American history, too. Uh, but she continues to fight, and she continues to travel, and she continues to preach, um, and she continues to try to, to, well, the women's issue becomes really important for her. Um, equality is still important. Desegregation becomes important because after uh, slavery ends, desegregation begins almost pretty much immediately. Or not, uh, segregation begins immediately, so she fights for that. Um, there's a great story. Uh, she becomes, she starts, uh, when she's in Washington, she starts riding the trolley, which was segregated at the time, just kind of showing, like, no, I'm going to do this. Black people are going to ride this. We're going to desegregate the trolley system because she's a fighter. Um, and she also starts taking up the cause of prison reform, and she speaks passionately uh, to, like, the Michigan uh, Senate and House uh, against the use of capital punishment. And so she fights. I mean, she just fights for these causes uh, till the end of her life, uh, really. She never, she never stops uh, fighting. She never stops speaking. She never try, stops working towards uh, equality for all kinds of groups of people. Uh, and she never stops telling people about Jesus, which, again, this is at the core of everything she's talking about, is this belief in God's love for everyone, including the slave, including women, uh, and this belief that all people should be treated equal. Uh, she dies uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, which, again, is where she spends her last years, uh, on November 26, 1883. She's about yeah, 86 years old. Uh, her last words reportedly 
are be a follower of the Lord Jesus. So till the very end, uh, she preaches Christ. Um, I mean, just a powerful woman who rose up from literally less than nothing. I mean, uh, a child born in slavery has less than nothing. They have, they don't even have rights. They don't even have freedom. She, she rose up from that to gain her freedom, to be an outspoken, outspoken leader, uh, in, in gaining that freedom for everyone. Uh, and although she never does get to see like, you know, women's suffrage come to fruition during her life. Uh, her work was important, part of it, in, in spreading that message of equality and spreading her message of w- women's rights and spreading her message of uh, of freedom for the slaves and of desegregation, uh, just in all of it, in spreading her message of Christ's love for all people uh, and in God's love for all people and in God wanting all people to be treated equally. She was uh, hugely important uh, for some of the stuff that, that does come after her. I mean, um, and and somebody definitely a story worthy to be told. Uh, so I wanted to end uh, just giving one more quote from her, which I I loved. Um, she said, "Life is a hard battle anyway. If we laugh and sing a little as we fight the good fight of freedom, it makes it all go easier. I will not allow my life's light to be determined by the darkness around me." And I just think that really summed her up. She did not allow the darkness around her. And there was a lot of darkness around her throughout most of her life. But she never allowed that uh, to define her life's light. And she shone really brightly in her life. And I think her influence still shines brightly today as we, you know, quite honestly, we're still uh, fighting for for equality. Uh, For people of color, for women, that's still not, the fight's still not completely done. And so, uh, you know, we need... We need the story of Sojourner Truth. We need her her influence and her impact uh, in this world today. And we could use some more Sojourner Truths out there, uh, sharing some hard truths with the world and proclaiming uh, Christ's love for everyone. Uh, So there you go, Sojourner Truth. If you didn't know much about her, if you never heard about her before, uh, I hope you... Uh, I hope you learned a lot, and I hope you can really remember this and uh, and share her story with others, because it's uh, it is a story. Like I said at the beginning, a lot of these black stories don't get told, uh, and they should, and hers definitely should. Uh, so uh, until next time, I uh, hope you have a good one. Hopefully, I'll be back here um, fairly soon with another uh, story of uh, of black history. So uh, take care, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>